0: And before I get into the night, I just want to say, um, so my parents bought a house over a year ago now, I guess. But it doesn't seem like it was that long, long ago, because once they bought it, they almost immediately started in on renovation. And it took so long. They basically, they didn't realize this was going to happen. But the only thing that, you know, like in movie sets, you have the, the front of a, of a building, and then behind it, it's like it's propped up by two by fours if you look behind it. And it's just, it's just a facade. It's like that's almost what happened to their house. The front remained pretty much the same, but it was gutted almost completely on the inside. And it's been totally renovated, and hopefully um, they can have us over at some point for, for a meal, or for coffee, or for dessert. They're always doing that sort of thing. And that's why they did it, to have people into their home. And so maybe you can see it one day soon. But it's a totally different house. Um, but it looks similar, it looks very similar on the outside. <clears throat> that's sort of the picture that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus here, who comes to sort of parlay between the religious leaders and Jesus, and Jesus just takes them for a complete ride. And he says, that's not going to work at all. This house has got to be completely renovated. It's got to be completely gutted. It's it's basically a redo. Things have to totally change, Nicodemus, for you to see, for you to enter God's kingdom. So let's let's jump into the night, this approach that Nicodemus, this Pharisee, takes to Jesus. So right there in the beginning of our text, John chapter 3, the Pharisees, Nicodemus is one of them. It's enough to say for now that they were, this was a theocracy under Roman dominion, yes, but it was nonetheless a theocracy, and the religious leaders ruled. And the religious leaders uh, were in large part the Pharisees, not completely. They joined with the, with the Sadducees, and were, they, had a, they had a group of, of 70 or so leaders that they met in with council, and they decided on on cases and, and laws and things like that, according to the scriptures, called the Sanhedrin. Um, I believe that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. So he was a ruler of rulers. And he comes to this, what many saw as an upstart, but what he sees as this man who is with God and whom God is very much with um, at night. So he's, a, he's an elite, he's a ruler. Um, he comes at night and there's there's a lot of ink that's spilled on why exactly he comes at night. None of us really know, but I believe it's at the end of chapter seven we see Nicodemus briefly again, and then we see him. And I'll bring this up later at the end of John as well. Um, so we see him only two more times, and at the end of chapter seven he sort of. The Pharisees are at this time just completely riled by Jesus, and they uh, they just can't stand him because he's really threatening their power base. Because Jesus he shakes up religion because he didn't come to give us a new religion. Um, he came to sort of deconstruct that completely and to take us straight to God. And so the, the religious leaders didn't like that at all, and Nicodemus kind of jumps in on Jesus' side just a bit with one comment, and they just tear him apart, and he just kind of keeps his mouth shut. So he's possibly a demure character, shy even. Uh, maybe that's why he comes at night, but he's spoken with his uh, his. His Pharisee friends, with the other rulers, and he kind of comes to parlay. He comes as a representative and says, "Look, we um, we agree that you are from God." And so he uh, he comes to meet Jesus and to sort of feel him out and to pay him some respect. Um, but another thing that's interesting, and I and I'm more of a, in in favor of this, although that bit on Je- on Nicodemus being shy and not being too sure and coming to visit Jesus, I'm not sure I want anyone to see me do this because. Um, that kind of thing might be going on, but John, he's just big on theme, and he's big on light, as often mentioned, and he's big on darkness, and every other time that he mentions night, there are three other times in the book, 9-4, 11-10, and thirteen, thirty. it refers to spiritual or moral darkness. So there's a sense in which Nicodemus says, hey, we know these things about you, we believe this. He doesn't come asking questions, he just kind of says, he comes in the driver's seat as it were, as this ruler, and he says, here's what we know about you I want to give you a chance to come to the table here. Let's let's work things out. But really, did you have to turn those tables over in the in the temple? That that was kind of the last thing that happened in John. We didn't get. To, I didn't get to preach that. It's after Cana at the end of chapter two, and Jesus just causes an absolute scene. He's just really uprooting their power structure. And so there could have been some of that sort of thing in Nicodemus' approach. Let's let's parlay. Let's let's talk reasonably here um, about what can be done. But. Um, he comes perhaps thinking that he's in the light. He comes perhaps thinking that he's in the know, that he understands the kingdom of God. And Jesus quickly, after that one comment in, in verse 3, moves him out of the driver's seat into the passenger seat, gets in the driver's seat, takes the wheel, takes the stick and says, let's go for a ride, pal. I'm going to show you something amazing. And in, in verse 7, I think it is, it just says, Nick, he says, why do you marvel? So Nicodemus is perhaps even just open mouthed, like, what are you talking about? So, um, he does not come asking questions, just a brief review review of night before we jump into new birth. He comes thinking he's in the light, but very possibly quite in the dark. And in fact, Jesus makes that pretty clear, doesn't he? You think you understand Nicodemus, but you really don't. Um, Jesus gets in the driver's seat. He starts with, we have agreed on these things. What does Jesus do? He goes right to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a kind of, let's come to the table, let's, let's start a scholarly, reasonable discussion um, about what can be agreed on, about who you are, about how you can fit into this structure, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't, again, he doesn't play that game at all. He gets in the driver's seat, and he goes straight for Nicodemus. He says, basically, here's what you have to do to see God, to be in his kingdom, to see his kingdom, to be one of his children. Um, He goes straight for Nicodemus, and that principle has to be extrapolated, friends. Jesus isn't concerned in the end about a scholarly discussion about who he is if it doesn't lead straight to him. He comes and he says, here's what you must do to be saved. He is concerned about taking you straight to him. It's what he's doing to Nicodemus, and it's what he always does. We sang about it, come to me, come to me. His arms are open wide. For you, friend, I don't know where you are, but God does. And I can tell you with absolute confidence for you, he is coming for you. He is open for you to come to him, and he's calling you. And the question is, what will you do with this Jesus, one-on-one, calling you by name? Will you come? Um, And, you know, he doesn't call us to come on the best possible terms. Nicodemus comes at night with some doubts, really on the wrong footing altogether, as we're about to see really probably morally and spiritually quite blind, even though he thinks he sees. And that's, that's, when, you, that's when you're in the most trouble is when you think you got it. And really, unless God takes us out of that, that's where we all are. Because how does John end this text that Austin finished with? Jesus stepped into darkness. Nobody wanted Jesus, nobody at all. So for us to come to him, he has to call us and to bring us into his light. But if we come thinking the wrong things about him, needing to be completely, have our minds completely changed about how to even approach, even if we come for the wrong reasons, because we're shy, because we're embarrassed about Christ. You know what? He doesn't send him away. He sits down with him. Jesus is humble and he says, come, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you how to come to God. He comes all the way down from heaven to receive us, friends. So wherever you are, Jesus will receive you just as you are, just as you are. Okay, that's the night. So the new birth, let's let's look at the next snapshot, the new birth, verse 3. Again, an overly familiar image. Jesus says, you have to be born again. That that phrase in the Greek is ambiguous, so Jesus probably uses that purposefully as a play for a a double meaning. Born again can also mean born from above. You have to be born again to see or enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born from above, not from down here, not from the earth. Um, Born again. The old you has to die. This isn't a polishing job. This isn't religion where you do some things, clean yourself up. This is death by crucifixion, which is why believing in Jesus means so much, because in him by faith, we die. Our old man Dies, our house is just gutted. It's a redo. The old you has to die, the one represented by Adam and rebellion against God. Your heart that hates God and is totally centered on self must be removed. You have to have a heart transplant. A new one has to be put in. Try as you may, you can't. You cannot. You cannot do this. That's what Jesus is saying. There's this great bit uh, in, and I've me- I mentioned this in my first sermon. at um, Sojourn in the, in the Heights, actually. And it was an infamous, sort of by now infamous, J.J. Watt sermon. <laughs> yeah, that's how infamous it is. I think it was in September 2014, if you want to amuse yourself. But I mentioned, I, I read this text. I'm not going to read it now, but it's so such a great illustration. It's in the Dawn Treader in the Narnia, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, in the third book, by some renderings, and um, there's this terrible little character called Eustace Scrub, and his name is what he is like. You know, it sounds like what he is. Just, he's a, he's a scrub. He's a little punk. He's so full of self, and he's such an unpleasant character. And so there's a scene where he actually becomes, by magic on this island, he becomes what he is on the inside. He starts to look like that on the outside. He becomes a dragon because he's so greedy and self-centered. He becomes this, this snake. And He's in a lot of pain, and he's lonely because he keeps flying over his friends, and they keep running away because <laughs> he's a dragon, and they don't. he's like trying to cry out to them, it's me, but, you know, they can't tell. He can't communicate. He's totally, he's totally ostracized, completely alienated, separated. That's what his sin has done to him, and he's begun to look like he looks on the inside. Great picture. And so he's, he's at the end of himself, and in fact, he tries, to, uh, he tries to take off his scaly skin with his own claws and he, every time he peels it off, it's just there again. It's even thicker. This self-salvation project, we try to clean ourselves up. We try to do things to walk up to God, to get to him. Every other religion, I don't care whether it's from the east or the west, is like this in the world to some degree. But it doesn't work. And so Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, comes along, and he says, would you like me to, uh, to undragon you, basically? And he waits for Eustace's permission amidst a lot of protestation. Eustace finally, he gets to a point of desperation, and that's where we have to get, friends. We have to get to a point of desperation where we're like, I can't do it. I've tried. I need you to save me, undragon me, God. And so with that permission, Aslan shows that he has absolute power to save. And so he plunges his claws deeper. Eustace says, it was so deep that I thought I was dead, right to my heart, basically. He plunges his claws in, and he rips off the dragon, and out comes this new, old Eustace. But it's not the old one. He looks the same, but he's been changed. And it's because Aslan did it this time. Aslan did it, but he waited for Eustace's permission, for Eustace to get to the end of himself and say, I need you, God. Come and do it. It's all you. Do it. It's a great, great picture of the new birth. Um, So, again, what what does being born again mean? It means being born from a different father, not from the father, not having the father of this world, your your father, your biological father, who passed down sin to you, the sin nature, uh, who was represented in Adam, and, and you are also represented in Adam who chose to disobey God instead of obeying God. Not to have your father on earth as father anymore first, but to have a new father, a father from above, the father in heaven. And Jesus, as his only son, came to give us that right to be called sons of God. So that's what he's starting to talk about with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is just his head spinning, right? Nick, Nick, you cannot, I'm going to say Nick. We have a Nick in here, so he's going to think I'm talking to him. And I am talking to him. Nick cannot see the kingdom of God um, new birth gives you new eyes, new senses. You can see things that were there all along, but, you, but your old eyes couldn't see them, okay? So um, again, Lewis has a great, I'm not going to talk anything about it really, but just reference it. If you haven't read Till We Have Faces, he wrote it toward the end of his life, C.S. Lewis. Mark it down. It was one of his favorite books, that in Paralandra, which is the second book in the Space Trilogy, two of my favorites also. It's a myth, a Greek myth retold. Till we have faces, there's a great picture of the person who has been reborn being able to see what is real, but what I mean, what is there, but what the person who is old, in the old man in the flesh, cannot just cannot see. It's a wonderful scene between two sisters. Um, But I'd thought of even a simpler, perhaps not as effective, just illustration of a radio. So I mean, there are radio waves and other sorts of waves now. I mean hundreds of types of waves going all around us, radio waves. But we can't, it's meaningless to us unless we have a transistor that can tap into that frequency. And once we tap into those invisible but real waves that are all around us right now, all of a sudden, we can, we can grab hold of that very real sound and thing. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is that you can't, I give you the transistor you need tap into what's there all around you the kingdom of God but it's invisible you can't see it and you cannot enter it unless you're born again and that comes through me and then he gets into this bit um, here where he says unless one is born of water and spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God what what does that mean unless what do we do with born of water and spirit um I think that I think that what it's touching on and it's too profound to be able to unpack here, but is the idea that it's water, the water of the blood of Jesus Christ, faith in what he's done for us, is the only thing that can cleanse us from sin, which is what baptism represents, isn't it? When we're, We go down into the water. The old man dies with Christ on the cross. He represents us. So the water, and in the Old Testament the water was an image almost always of in the Levitical priesthood of of, of the purification of sin, an external representative of what ought to happen on the inside. And, of course, that water doesn't do anything, but Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to give you that water, I'm going to clean you from sin. But it's not enough just to be cleansed from sin. A lot of times when we talk about salvation that Christ brings, we talk about this aspect of his salvation, and that's it. We stop there. But Christ came to bring us more than just being cleaned from our sin. In a sense, that's like the dead... Uh, the dead man being clean from sin but he's not alive yet that doesn't do us a lot of good what Jesus says is you must be born of water and spirit cleaned we are breathed into by the breath of God as, does, that, does that recollect anything? as Adam was in Genesis 2-7 what happened God made Adam from the dust of the earth with his own hands and then he breathed into him his own breath breath and spirit are the same word in the Hebrew his ruach he breathed his spirit or his breath into him and he became a living being, didn't he? Pre sin, no sin, he's totally clean, but he's not alive. He's not a, a living image bearer of the living God in relationship until God breathes his own spirit into him. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come to clean you of all of your sin. I do the work, you trust in me. And I've come to give you the very spirit of God to bring you from death to life. And that, my friends, is a seal of salvation that will never be taken from you. It is something God does, and when God does it, through no good of your own, it cannot be taken away. And that is reassuring. So when uh, when Jesus mentions this, it's almost certainly, I mean, Nicodemus probably had the Old Testament. He certainly knew the whole Old Testament. He probably had large chunks of it memorized, if not the whole thing. The Pharisees were famous for that. And so he was definitely familiar with texts like Ezekiel 36, which was read as our Old Testament text this morning. It talks about, has this sort of language of of new birth and water um, and spirit. And it's no accident that the text that Jesus was alluding to, at the very least, in Ezekiel 36, what's the next chapter in Ezekiel? If you know your Ezekiel, if you know your major prophets, um, you, you know, if you don't know the chapter, it's okay, you know the event, it's the dry bones. Ezekiel 37, the very next chapter is the Valley of dry bones, where, as, as many of you know, God takes Ezekiel on the mountaintop, I guess, and he gives him a vision of a valley beneath him of dry bones, just bones, bone, graveyard. And he says, "What do you see?" And he tells him, And he says, "I'm going to make these bones live." And he puts skin on them, and he puts flesh, He puts flesh on them, he puts life into them, and he makes them living beings. And that is a picture of what Messiah is going to come and going to do. And Jesus is saying, I'm that man. I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm surprised you don't know this, Nicodemus. You call yourself a teacher of Israel? And Jesus is doing this to the Pharisees all the time, and it just ticks him off like no other. But Nicodemus, there's no, there's no evidence that it ticked him off at all. Humble, perhaps shy, demure, here to, here to meet the real Jesus. And he sure is. He's getting taken for a real test drive here. Um... Jesus is saying, I am that thing, not only that the whole Old Testament points to, but I am that person that that fulfills the Old Testament, and I am that person that God ordered history to point to. That's me, Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. Okay, so at the end of that, verse 7, what, I mentioned it earlier, do not marvel, Jesus says. You don't really hear any more from Nicodemus after after verse two. Jesus just takes over. He's driving now. But he does say don't marvel. So we know Nicodemus is just like. Um, so he's stunned. Now Jesus gets into meat and potatoes. Okay, so that's that is some good stuff, but man, he downshifts into he, he shifts into third gear, I think, and really starts picking up speed here. We're gonna we've looked at the night and we've looked at um, the new birth. We're gonna look at the snake for a little bit we're going to look at the snake. So in verse 14, Jesus says, "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life." And when he said that, he knew Nicodemus was very familiar with that Old Testament account. I don't like to call them stories because they are stories, but story can imply it's fake, it's it's made up, it's fabricated, it's fiction. These are not just stories, they're accounts of what really happened. Again, the fact that the Old Testament points to Jesus means that not only was the Old Testament written to point to him, but history happened. History was crafted by a sovereign God to get us to Christ. In him, Colossians 1:15 and following, "All things are held to him, for him. Through him are all things." So he refers to this serpent lifted up on a, on a pole in the wilderness, and and it's in Numbers 21, and in short, what happened is, the Israelites, they were in the wilderness before, they were in the desert, in the Sinai desert, south of Israel, before they got to the promised land, and they were being tested, and they started grumbling against God, after he'd been faithful to them, one of the many times, and so, he sends serpents, fiery serpents among them, to bite them, and some of them start to die, and they start to cry out to God. And he says, okay, solution. Put a snake, just like the one that's biting them, up on a pole. Make it of copper. And put it on a pole and lift it up. And anyone who looks on that snake will be saved from the serpents, healed. And so Jesus says, yeah, that's me. That's exactly what has to happen. And all who believe on me as I'm lifted up will be saved. So let's look at that a little more deeply, okay? Let's spend a little bit of time looking at some of those. Let's do a little exegesis. What happens in that, in that account? What does God tell Moses? Have the people, in, in the ancient Near East, the snake was accursed. You know, Genesis 3, the very beginning of the Bible, really, um, the beginning of the fall, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to sin, to disobey God, and that's exactly what they do. And what, is, what does God say to the serpent? starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, of Genesis, he says, Cursed are you, on your belly you shall go. And really the serpent represents Satan and his host. Um, But still, every time we see a serpent, we're reminded of that curse. And of the curse that captivates all of creation. And all creation is waiting for us, the sons of men, to be redeemed, that it might be also brought into the glory that we have in Christ. So... The serpent is cursed, and in, in the, in the Israel, Israeli Jewish community, it, was, it, was, it carried the curse. And so God says, lift up the cursed thing and look on it, and you will be saved. Counterintuitive. Um, look on that which is cursed for you, and the curse will be removed from you. Um, look outside of yourself. Don't look inside. There's no self, self-salvation project here. Don't do anything. Don't scrub yourself up. Just look. I'm going to provide something completely completely outside of you in any of your efforts. Look outside of it and up to it and you will be saved. Look to this cursed thing. That that just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It takes faith in God's word. Okay, he's told me to do it, I'm going to do it. To be saved. Obedience to God's word. And what is God's word to us? Look to Jesus. Cursed for you. Lifted up on a pole. And you will be saved. It's foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God for salvation. This uh, this snake was copper, and it was in a desert, a red desert, and with the setting sun, perhaps copper is a sort of reddish brown metal, could have looked quite bloody. And how would you have put the serpent on the stick? Well, I always thought of it without thinking too much. I just assumed, oh, we wrap it around sort of down the pole. But if you're going to make it of copper, it would be awfully hard to wrap a serpent. I think I thought of that because that's the sort of medical image, you know, of a serpent wrapped around the, um, the pole. But really, it would have been a lot easier just to make a straight snake and hang it crossways perpendicular up on this pole. And so what? there's a good chance that what people were looking at to be saved was this cross In the wilderness that had become so by, because of our sin, the earth was made a garden. And our sin is made of it an absolute desert, a howling waste. In this howling waste, a cross with a cursed object on it it looked bloody. (laughs) And Jesus says, yeah, that's why I came. That's where I'm going. I I didn't come so you could try to scrub yourself up and call me another prophet or teacher and try to live like me. I came to die for you because that's what you deserve. But if you die for your own sins, you'll never know God. You'll be dead. So I'm going to die for you and I'm going to beat death and I'm going to rise to new life. And if you look to me, the cursed who is cursed for you, who didn't deserve to be cursed, you who are cursed, your curse will be removed and placed on me and you will be saved. You'll die with me and you'll rise with me to new life. Verse 16, that famous, wonderful verse, he goes right from that snake bit into this. For God so loved the world, or for God loved the world in this way. How much does God love us? This much. He gave us his only and precious and perfectly loved and perfect son to be crucified so that we could be saved and made whole. For God loves the world in this way, if you want to take it that way. How does God love the world? His expression of love for you, friend, is Jesus Christ on the cross. That's, That's the love of God for you encapsulated in a symbol, in a snapshot, in an image. In the face of Jesus, again, I say this all the time, in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the heart of God the Father. There's this almost infinite effort that comes from all sorts of angles academic, cultural, otherwise that would try to get us to pit the God of the Old Testament against Jesus meek and mild who loves us so clearly. And this explodes that. This says, no, all along God has been working to show us his love to take care of us by bringing us to him and taking care of sin and crucifying it and getting rid of it and bringing us into a new type of life where we can know him All along, he's been working to do that through these symbols and through these acts in history to get us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect expression of who God is for us. I love the way, the tender way John puts it in his first letter, 1 John 3, 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And the KJV is even better. Behold, what manner of love Jesus Christ given for us. This is how much God loves us. That he gave his only son. You know, we often think of God, lo- God you, you love me so much. Jesus, you endured so much pain and suffering for me. Thank you. And we ought to do that. But I think we think less often of the pain and the suffering, if I can say that. And I think that I can. The loss involved with the father who, who not only gave his son, but sent him and was pleased to pour his wrath due to us out on his own precious son whom he loved perfectly pleased to crush him Isaiah 53 so that we could be restored and made whole Um, the expression of love the pain that the father must have gone through to get us back knowing that God is just and he can't just he can't just dismiss sin with a magic wand he has to take care of it and so he did so through Jesus Christ his son that whosoever believes into him we talked about that last week it's a strange phrase that John uses, and it's not found in other Greek literature. Believing into Jesus, faith is the mechanism that God has chosen. Faith says, I can't do it. That thing outside of me that's lifted up, he did it. Faith is the open hand that receives all of the work that God has done for us in Christ. Faith inserts us into the death of Christ for us and the life of Christ for us. His payment for sin and all of his obedience to the Father into your account, received by the open hand of faith. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Faith is the key that opens the door to God's house that is God himself. Um, That they should not perish. Okay? I think we skip over this a lot. Perishing, this is our default destination. It doesn't just mean that they should not drop dead and then be done. That's annihilationism. That's not what the Scripture teaches. That they should not perish. Mean, perish means to be eternally undone like a ball of yarn. This just The string is pulled and it just diminishes forever. And much worse than that. Payment for all of our sins to a just God who can't overlook sin. That's the destination of everyone who is in darkness. And friends, John makes it real clear that's all of us. Until Christ comes and calls us to himself and we believe on him. He perished for us we who believe in him, that we might be saved instead. That was our destination. It doesn't have to be. Jesus took that. He was crushed. Eternally, somehow, in a span of time, took our eternal conscious punishment for sin upon himself, into himself, took the curse of creation into himself, paid for it, buried it, and then exploded with life from the grave three days later. And it makes God kind of seem cruel when you start to dwell on the perish bit. But the fact is, we are the ones who chose to disobey God um, and do every day. But God is the one who chose to send us his son as a solution to save us. We can't forget that. We can't can't divorce how this makes makes God seem cruel from the fact that he sent us his own son. His son is the expression of love. Satan will want to get us to believe the opposite. We can't. Remember he who was cursed for us look to him and believe I'm going to skip that I'm going to skip through verse 18 and just look at the second to last snapshot these last two are very quick that was the snake we spent by far the longest on I want to look at the house okay and then the thief, and we're done, very quickly. Back to my parents' house, I already mentioned it. Similar, if we look at the house now, so similar switching from the snake, totally gutted their house, totally renovated. It's completely new on the inside, but it looks really similar on the outside. But if you look at it with a careful eye, and you'd seen it before, you can notice a difference. And the difference is basically the windows. The windows are new. And looking into them, you can see, if you're careful, the renovation. You can see the newness on the inside. And I think that's an apt illustration. Not perfect, but, man, someone who's new, a new creation in Christ. On the outside, very similar. But Proverbs tells us that the eyes are the window to the soul. And if you look at someone's eyes, as someone who's been born again, not by your own work, but by the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his life for you. Man, you can see the life, the light of God, of the Holy Spirit of the living God taking up residence inside of them through those windows. You can see the renovation. Christianity is not a religion. It is a reborn person. It is a totally supernatural act of God from above. And that's one of the things that I think Nicodemus began to think on and that began to change his world. And indeed, we do see at the end of this book that Nicodemus probably became a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, totally renewed. He kind of takes up for him a little bit in chapter 7 and gets edged out by the Pharisees, as we talked about. But then at the end, he with the rich man Joseph of Arimathea... All the disciples had fled, except for John. I think we always say that. All, all the disciples fled. Actually, John, John stayed. John was there. And John, Jesus gave at the cross. He was thinking not of himself, but of others. And he said, woman, your son, son, your, your mother. And he, he paired John with his mother at the cross and said, you have a home now. He took care of his mom. Always thinking of others. But that's beside the point. One of the only people not to flee was Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the shy, demure, ruling elite who would have been utterly ostracized for being a follower of Christ, helps take Jesus' body down from the cross and helps Joseph to bury him in a tomb that was prophesied about in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. He took that risk of identifying with this crucified, cursed Savior. Do you think these words took hold of Nicodemus? I think they did. And I pray that they would take hold of you. And finally, the thief. Um, Verses 19 through 21. Again, referenced it, but basically what Jesus is saying, what John is saying here, is that Jesus stepped into darkness. And only those who come to the light are enlightened and are saved. But really, all of us hate the light. We are all in darkness, in and of ourselves. And that is our natural disposition in Adam, our earthly father. And so Jesus says, look, an act of God is required for you to be saved, for you to be brought from death to life. You don't do it yourself. You don't walk there. God has to grab you by the top knot and bring you into his family to save you from hell and damnation, from your slide away from him, hating him, as our natural disposition, turns the lights on, shows you his beauty, draws you to himself into the light. This is the salvation of God. And it's something that every act, we are an Acts 29 church, um, the whole Sojourn Network is, and that means a lot of things. It means that we're committed to church planting uh, among them. We don't, we're not committed to, you know, if in a year we have, we're packed to the gills, people sitting in the windows and up on the basketball goal and wherever else and under Abraham Lincoln and and uh, Washington over here and up on this st- whatever. If we just packed out, <clears throat> we're not just going to bu- get a building and a bigger building, and we want to plant. We want to be raising up leaders and planting in the area that God has called us to, and have those churches plant. Another thing that <clears throat> Acts twenty nine means is that it means that at least in an area in the area of salvation, how does God save? You have to be reformed soteriologically, which just means. This God saves. What does Jesus mean? What is the name Jesus, Yeshua? It means God saves. It's as simple as that. But remember, Eustace Scrub, can I? Are you ready? Are you desperate enough? Are you at the end of yourself? Are you ready for me to plunge my claws into to make you new? To release you from your slavery? I can do it, I have all the power. Only I can do it. You can't help. You've tried it. Self-salvation project will not work. Not even 1%. Not even 1%. Are you ready? Yeah. God saves. God does it. God alone. And he does it through Jesus Christ. All the work necessary for your salvation. And what comes from that, friends? Can we just live however we want afterwards? Romans 6? May it never be. What comes from that is new life. New life that looks like the life of Christ that looks like the life of the Father. That's how we can tell if we are his, and that is so important. So it humbles us to the dust. This was not of me, but it lifts us to the stars or to the heavens. To steal a phrase from Keller, it's not of me, but it was for me. That's how much God loves me. So why, why the thief? Why did I bring up that snapshot and then we're finished? Tim Keller, again, he's featured in this sermon quite a bit. He tells this great story. It's just an illustration. It's not true. Two would-be thieves. They go to steal something. They do steal something. They're running away, and there's a fence, and they jump the fence, and the cops are after them, and one of them gets grabbed going over the fence. Both of them do. Sorry. One of them gets away, though, but his shirt's torn, so he kind of has this reminder, like, if in 20 years he forgets and thinks, oh, maybe that was just a bad dream. I don't know. Remember that torn shirt? You were there. You barely got away. The other one, though, same deed, same sprint. For some reason, he gets caught and they, his shirt doesn't tear. Pulled down. Prison. For life or for 20 years. Changes him forever. Totally different trajectory. The other guy goes on to be a normal citizen. What's the difference? One guy's shirt tore. Nothing in here is different. If you don't see your life as a saved, if indeed you have come to Christ and been washed of your sins and breathed into by the Spirit of God and freed from death and sin and hell and given a disposition that loves God and is secure forever, if you don't see that, if you don't see yourself as completely on equal footing with that person who is headed to hell and lost and consumed by their sin, you don't get the gospel. That is a humbling thing, and when we get that, when we get that, that thief picture that Christ is putting forward here, he did it all. He was lifted up for us. All we have to do is look to him and be saved. When we get that, guess what? Another one of our values: we pursue P. They're all they're all P's, so I can remember them. We pursue the outsider. It propels us. That humble heart of gratitude it propels us out to go preach the gospel in our work, in the way we work, in the way we love, in the way we literally articulate the good news of Jesus Christ through others because we don't deserve it. My shirt tore, man. Come on, get some. If we're proud and if we think I had something to do with this, then guess what? We're not going to tell anyone. We, pride keeps us in. And that's the gospel. And that's the gospel of John in the third chapter, this wonderful text that I just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg on, but it's a glorious one. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll celebrate communion together, friends. Jesus, wonderful Savior, you were lifted up. You told us that as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be, verb of compulsion, You had to, you had to be lifted up. It's why you came. Everything you did from the beginning of John and really from before the beginning of time was focused on coming and living for us and dying for us and rising for us. And for us, you reign and intercede now. And for us, you will return. We, by faith, trust in you, and we are represented by you with the Father, and we are secure. And for those of us who haven't made that decision yet, Lord, I pray this would be a safe place for them to inquire, like Nicodemus did, to be loved, to be embraced, that we would be a place where people belong before they have to believe and certainly before they have to behave. We are a bunch of sinners that you have saved, and we love you. We thank you for being lifted up and cursed so that we could be made whole and brought to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.